0: Welcome to Grim Gossip. Before we start the show, I want to give a proper warning. The episode you are about to hear may include grim details about assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is about Dean Corll, who was born on December 24, 1939. He was the oldest of two boys and is said to have been a quiet and shy kid Who didn't really socialize with other children, but cared about their well-being. His parents, Mary and Arnold, weren't particularly a happily married couple. They fought more often than not, but they loved their boys. Arnold was said to have been a strict disciplinarian while Mary was a doting mother. Their marriage ended in divorce in 1946. Following this divorce, Arnold was drafted into the US Air Force and was stationed in Memphis, Tennessee. In response to this, Mary sold the family home and relocated with her ex to allow her sons to keep in contact with their father. In 1950, when Dean was seven years old, he was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, which is an inflammatory heart disease that can involve the heart, skin, joints, and the brain. This diagnosis brought his parents back together. They remarried that year and moved to Pasadena, Texas, but the reconciliation was short-lived. Just three years later, they were divorced again and Mary was granted custody of the kids. The divorce was said to have been amicable and they maintained a friendly relationship with each other so the boys could continue to have a relationship with both parents. Shortly after Mary's second divorce, she married a traveling clock salesman named Jake West. The family was then moved to Vider, Texas, where Mary had one more child with her new husband. They started a candy business out of their garage, where Dean worked day and night while he was in school. He and his brother were in charge of running the candy-making machines and packing the product while Jake was pounding the pavement selling their candy. After Dean graduated, the family moved to the northern outskirts of Houston so the family could be closer to where the majority of their candy business was taking place. The business became so successful that they opened a shop, which they named Pecan Prince. In 1960, when Dean was 21, His mother asked him to move to Indiana to live with his widowed grandma for a while to take care of her. While he was there, he began dating a local girl who ended up proposing to him in 1962. He rejected this marriage proposal and returned to Houston shortly after. Moving into an apartment above the family candy shop to be a part of the family business again, which had moved to Houston Heights by this time. In 1963, Mary and Jake divorced, and Mary opened up her own candy shop, Coral Candy Company, which she made Dean the vice president of, and her other son, the secretary treasurer. The year of opening, a teenage boy who worked in their shop went to Mary, telling her that Dean had made sexual advances towards him. Mary fired the boy that day. In 1964, Dean was drafted into the U.S. Army and was stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was later moved to Fort Benning, Georgia to train as a radio repairman before being permanently assigned to Fort Hood, Texas. Apparently, Dean's military record, as short as it was, was unblemished, but he was said to have hated every minute of his service. He applied for a hardship discharge from service due to his family's business's need for him. He was granted an honorable discharge on June 11th, 1965, just 10 months after he started. He reportedly revealed to his close friends that he realized he was a homosexual while in the army where he had experienced his first homosexual encounters. Other friends who weren't so close to him noticed small changes in Dean's mannerisms towards teenage males when he returned from service. Dean resumed his vice-presidency of the family company, which was in fierce competition with his ex-stepfather's company, the Con Prince. He began pouring the majority of his time into the business to ensure its success as the public's demand for his family's candy began to increase. In 1965, the company moved to a new building on 22nd Street, which was across the street from Helms Elementary School. Around this time is when he began to be known as the Candy Man or the Pied Piper because he would give free candy out to the kids often. They employed a small workforce, mostly of teenage boys, and people did take notice of his flirtatious behavior towards several of the underage male employees. At this point, he put a pool table in the back of the candy factory where he allowed the employees and local teenagers to hang out. In 1967, Dean befriended 12-year-old David Brooks. He was a regular at Dean's back room hangout spot and soon became a favorite of Dean's. David often joined Dean on business trips he regularly took to South Texas beaches with other kids. Dean is said to have taken care of David when he needed help, giving him money whenever he needed it. David began to look at Dean as a father figure, but in 1969, when David turned 15, their relationship evolved into a sexual one. Dean gave David a multitude of gifts in exchange for allowing him to perform oral sex on David. The following year, David's parents got divorced and he ended up moving with his mom to Beaumont, Texas, going back to Houston every now and again to visit his dad. When he was visiting his dad, he also visited Dean, who he stayed with occasionally. He even began calling Dean's apartment his second home. Eventually. David dropped out of school and moved back to Houston with his dad. At this time, Coral Candy Company went out of business, and Dean's mom moved to Colorado with his little sister. Even though Mary talked to Dean on the phone often, the move to Colorado was the end of them seeing each other ever again. After the close of their family company, Dean went into electrical work with the Houston Lighting and Power Company. This is when his reign of terror began. In September of 1970, Jeffrey Conan, an 18-year-old student, was hitchhiking home from the University of Texas to see his parents. It's said that he was offered a ride from Dean, which he took, and was never seen again. A short time later, Dean abducted two teenage boys and brought them back to his apartment. David happened to stop by that day, and he walked in on something he was not expecting. David walked in on Dean sexually assaulting the two teenage boys, who were handcuffed and strapped to his four-poster bed. Dean then bribed David, offering a car to him in return for his silence, which David accepted. At first, Dean said he was part of a gay pornography ring and had sent the boys to California. He then went out and bought a green Chevrolet Corvette for David. Dean later confessed to David that he had killed the two boys. He then struck up a deal with David, telling him that for every boy he lured back to the apartment, he would give David $200, which is the equivalent to just over $1,500 today. On November 17th, Dean decided to rent a boat shed in order to hide his crimes, which will become one of his favorite burial spots. In December, David kept up his end of the bargain, luring two 14-year-old boys, James Glass and Danny Yates, away from their religious rally. James had previously hung out with David at Dean's before, so of course he went without being forced, which made it easier for Danny to go with him. Once they were back at the apartment, the two boys were given beer, then they were tied to opposite sides of Dean's homemade torture board, which was just a large plywood plank with four holes drilled into each corner to easily restrain his victims. James and Danny were tortured for some time, having endured rape before being strangled to death, then buried in the boat shed. Six weeks later, in January of 1971, Dean and David happened upon two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking home. They had gone to their friend's house to talk about starting up a bowling league, but turned around to go home when they found out their friend wasn't home. As Dean and David drove by, The boys were persuaded to get into Dean's van and go hang out at Dean's place. Unsurprisingly, they were restrained and raped, but they were not kept alive for long. They were quickly killed by manual strangulation and disposed of in the same manner as before, buried in the boat shed. Between March and May of that year, Dean abducted and killed three more victims having David to help him with each of these incidents. The first of these three victims was 15-year-old Randall Harvey. He was last seen on March 9th riding his bike towards Oak Forest, where he worked as a part-time gas station attendant. He was discovered to have been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. The other two victims during this time, David Hillgeist, 13, and Gregory Malley, 16, were abducted together and killed together on May twenty-ninth. The parents of all three boys went into a panicked frenzy attempting to locate their kids. They printed out missing posters of them all and began to distribute these posters to the community, even offering a cash reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of their kids. Elmer Wayne Henley, who was a lifelong friend of David Hillgeist, volunteered to help pass out these posters and search for his friend. He attempted to comfort the parents, telling them there must be a reasonable explanation for the boys' absence. In August of that year, Dean and David ran into a boy named Reuben Haney, who was an acquaintance of David's. He was walking home after watching a movie when he was persuaded to go back to Dean's new apartment to drink and do some drugs. When he was under the influence, Dean proceeded to rape Reuben before strangling him and burying him in the boat shed with the others. The next month, in September, Dean moved into another new apartment in Houston Heights. While he was there, David helped him abduct two more young teens who suffered the same fate as all the other victims. These two victims remain John Doe's and their remains still haven't been identified. Not long after this, in the winter of 1971, David introduced Dean to his friend, Elmer Wayne Henley, who was friends with one of the last victims. Elmer was initially lured to Dean's apartment as a potential victim, however, Dean took a liking to Elmer and instead wanted to bring him on as an accomplice. Dean decided to offer Elmer the same deal he offered David. $200 for any boy he could lure back to his apartment. The cuter, the better. He told Elmer that he was involved in a gay pornography, white slavery ring operating out of Dallas, Texas. Elmer denied his offer, but remained friends with Dean anyway. Eventually, he began to view Dean as a big brother who he could confide in. Then, Elmer's family fell on hard times. In early 1972, he eventually accepted Dean's offer in order to help his family's financial circumstances. The first abduction Elmer took part in was shortly after Dean moved to a new apartment on 925 Shuler Street in February. Elmer went for a ride with Dean and picked up a boy on the corner of 11th and Stewwood. They lured him in with the promise of alcohol and drugs, which they actually did do when they got back to Dean's apartment. After hanging out for a while, they decided to play a game, which Dean and Elmer had already prepared. The ruse began with Elmer handcuffing his own hands behind his back, then freeing himself. Elmer had the key in his back pocket. They convinced this boy to attempt the same trick, but instead of being freed, Dean went on to bind him further and gag him. Elmer left Dean to it, thinking this boy was being sold into a sex slavery ring. This boy too remains a John Doe. A month later, on March 24th, Dean, David, and Elmer ran into one of Elmer's friends, Frank Aguirre. Elmer called Frank over to the van and asked him if he wanted to come party with them. Frank agreed and followed them back to Dean's place. After smoking a blunt with the trio, Frank picked up the handcuffs Dean had left out. Without skipping a beat, Dean pounced on Frank, pushing him down on the table and cuffing his hands behind his back. Elmer pleaded with Dean to stop begging him not to do this to his friend, but Dean denied this request, confessing that he had already raped, tortured, and killed the previous victims, which he helped Dean abduct. Dean said he had every intention of doing the same thing to Frank. Elmer would later help Dean and David bury his friend at High Island Beach. Despite knowing the truth, Elmer continued to assist with further abductions and murders. On April 20th, the three abducted Mark Scott, who was a friend of both David and Elmer. But Dean seemed to have become much bolder. They didn't even lure Mark in. He was taken by force and fought hard against Dean, who was trying to restrain him. He even attempted to stab his attackers with a knife, but when he saw Elmer point a gun at him, he gave up. Mark was tied to the torture board and encountered the same fate as all of the other victims. He was later buried at High Island Beach. It's said that Elmer began to escalate into sadistic tendencies as well. The three later abducted two boys named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. Both boys were raped and tortured and kept tied to Dean's bed. Elmer decided to join in on the torture and began manually strangling Billy, then yelled out, quote, Hey Johnny, unquote, then shot Johnny in the forehead. The bullet exited through his ear. Unfortunately, Johnny did not die immediately. He pleaded with Elmer, saying, quote, Wayne, please don't, unquote, before he too was strangled to death. Both boys were buried at High Island Beach. The next victim was a boy named William Ridinger. He was lured in with the promise of alcohol and drugs. He was quickly restrained and tied to the torture board, tortured and abused by Dean. However, on this rare occasion, David convinced Dean to release William, until so after William had endured this horror. He was allowed to leave. Not long after this, Dean and Elmer together attacked David when he walked into the apartment one day. He was knocked out and tied to the torture board, where Dean proceeded to assault him before releasing him. Despite this event, David continued to be Dean's accomplice. Dean then moved again in July to the Westcott Towers, On July 19th, Stephen Sickman was abducted after leaving a party. He was found to have been bludgeoned in the chest with a blunt object before being strangled and buried in the boat shed. The next month, Roy Bunton, 19, was abducted on his way to work. He was found to have been gagged and shot in the head twice, then buried in the boat shed. Both of these victims were actually not identified until pretty recently in 2011. In October, David and Elmer ran into two teenagers named Wally J. Simino and Richard Hambry who were walking home. They were persuaded to get into David's Corvette with the promise of a party. That night, Wally is known to have called home in the middle of his distress and yelled for his mother into the receiver before the call was terminated and he was never seen again. The next morning, Elmer accidentally shot Richard in the mouth with the bullet exiting his neck. Unfortunately, the shot did not kill him. He was left to bleed out, but before he could die from the loss of blood, he and his friend Wally were strangled to death and buried in the boat shed. In the same month, they picked up Willard Branch, hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. He had actually known David and Elmer, which is why he got into the car. Dean attempted to perform fellatio on him, but had no intent of anything being pleasurable. It was said that Dean removed his genitals in one bite. Shortly after, in November... Richard Kempner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. He was found strangled and buried at High Island Beach. Dean then moved again in January of 1973 to Wirt Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston. Not even two weeks into living in his new apartment, he abducted and killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, who was also a friend of David and Elmer. In March, Dean moved again to his father's previous address in Pasadena, Texas. During the first couple of months of living at this address, there is said to have been no victims. It's said this might have been due to Dean having suffered from hydrocele testes, which is an accumulation of fluid around a testicle. Scientists have also said this may have been why he bit off Willard's penis and testicles. who's was projecting his own pain onto someone else. Around this time, Elmer had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant in what he said was an attempt to distance himself from Dean, which is also said to be a major factor into why the killings suddenly stopped, but it wasn't long before Elmer was back and Dean was back at his old habits. In June, Dean picked up where he left off and his kill count and level of brutality increased significantly. Elmer stated that Dean acted as though he was in a bloodlust and that he and David knew exactly when Dean was about to announce that he, quote, needed to do a new boy, unquote. Dean would become restless pacing, chain-smoking, and making reflex movements. On June 4th, they abducted a 15-year-old boy named William Ray Lawrence. Two weeks later, they abducted a 20-year-old named Raymond Stanley Blackburn. Both victims met the same fate as the others, raped, tortured, and strangled, later being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 6th, Elmer began taking classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air where he made friends with a 15-year-old named Homer Lewis Garcia. Homer called his mom one day to tell her he was staying with his friend, Elmer. That night, he was shot and left to bleed out in Dean's bathtub, then buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Just five days later, they abducted 17-year-old John Sellers, who was visiting from Orange County. He was bound and shot to death, then buried at High Island Beach. Later that month, David married his pregnant girlfriend, which meant that Elmer was now Dean's main source of luring victims temporarily. The two abducted and murdered three teenagers in the span of six days. On July 19th, 15-year-old Michael Balch, who was the brother of a previous victim, Billy Belch, was on his way to get a haircut when he was abducted. He, too, was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Then, on July 25th, Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones were abducted together. Elmer has stated that he himself buried them in the boat shed. On August 3rd, James Stanton Draymala was abducted with the help of David and Elmer while he was riding his bike. He was attempting to collect loose glass bottles in an attempt to resell them. When he was brought back to Dean's apartment, he was tied to the torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. David would later say that James was a small, blonde boy who he shared a pizza with, They knew each other for a total of 45 minutes before he was attacked. Four days later, Elmer invited his friend Timothy Cordell Curley to a party at Dean's, which he went to where it was only three of them. David was back home with his new wife. When they got to Dean's, they drank alcohol and huffed on paint fumes until about midnight before leaving. Timothy promised to return shortly. Elmer left with Timothy back to Houston Heights, where he parked his car close to Elmer's house. When they stopped, they heard a loud commotion coming from across the street where Elmer's 15-year-old girlfriend, Rhonda Williams, lived. They got out and walked towards her house to see what was going on when Rhonda came out limping. She had just been beaten by her father, who had gone into a drunken rage. Elmer invited her to go with them back to Dean's in order for her to get away from her dad. So she climbed into the back seat and they drove back to Dean's. This would be the beginning of the end. Around 3 a.m. on August 8th, they arrived back at Dean's place and walked in. When Dean saw them, he flew into a fit of rage. He took Elmer in private and told him that he, quote, "...has ruined everything." Unquote. After Elmer explained the situation with Rhonda, Dean calmed down and offered the kids alcohol and drugs. They continued to party for about two hours until Elmer, Timothy, and Rhonda passed out. When Elmer came to, he was on his stomach, mouth taped shut, and Dean was slapping handcuffs on his wrists. Timothy and Rhonda were already tied up with their mouths taped shut too. Timothy had already been stripped completely naked. Dean noticed that Elmer was waking up and told him how angry he was for having brought a girl into his house and that now he was going to have to kill them all. He told Elmer, quote, Man, you blew it bringing that girl, unquote, and, quote, I'm gonna kill you all, but first I'm gonna have my fun, unquote. He then went and kicked Rhonda in the chest repeatedly before pulling Elmer to his feet and putting a pistol against his stomach, threatening him. Elmer was able to calm Dean down by telling him he'd participate in the torture and murder of the other two if Dean would just let him go. After about 30 minutes of this back and forth, Dean agreed and untied him. They then dragged Timothy and Rhonda into the bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of the torture board. Dean gave Elmer a hunting knife and instructed him to cut Rhonda's clothes off while he raped and killed Timothy, which Elmer was also instructed to do to Rhonda. At this point, both victims began to wake up. Rhonda began to freak out, trying to get out of her restraints and screaming. Elmer went to remove her gag, and she looked at him and asked, quote, Is this for real? Unquote, to which Elmer responded with a yes. Then she asked, quote, Are you going to do anything about it? Unquote. Elmer asked Dean if he could take Rhonda to the other room, a question which went unanswered. He then grabbed the pistol and pointed it at Dean and said, quote, You've gone far enough, Dean. I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all of my friends. Unquote. Dean then crawled off of Timothy and approached Elmer, saying, quote, Kill me, Wayne. Unquote. Hesitation crept in, and Elmer took a few steps back. Dean continued to approach him, screaming, quote, You won't do it. Unquote. Elmer then shot Dean hitting him in the forehead but the bullet didn't penetrate his skull so he continued towards Elmer and even lurched towards him but he received two more bullets to the left shoulder. Dean then ran out of the room and Elmer followed him firing three more shots into Dean. Dean hit the floor and died face down naked and bleeding. Elmer stated that for a moment All he could think about was how Dean would be proud. Dean had been training him on how to react quickly and forcefully during confrontation, which paid off. He went to release Timothy and Rhonda, who got dressed as soon as they were free. For a little while, they sat there and discussed what they should do. Elmer suggested that they should all just leave and never look back, but Rhonda said, "No." We should call the police. Eventually, they were all in agreement, and at around 8:30 a.m., Elmer had the Pasadena Police Department on the phone. According to records, Elmer immediately told them, "Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man." As they waited for the police to show up, Elmer confessed to Timothy that this was not the first time he had killed someone with a gun. The police showed up quickly, and the kids were found waiting on the porch. Upon arrival, they noticed the gun on the driveway and confiscated it. They then placed the three kids in the back of one of the cruisers and went inside to inspect the scene where they found Dean. As they moved deeper into the house, they found that the bedroom floor had been lined with plastic They also found his torture board on the floor with handcuffs attached to a nylon rope at two corners and another nylon rope in the bottom holes. They also located the hunting knife, additional rolls of plastic, a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cells for increased volume, and electric motor with loose wires attached. Eight additional pairs of handcuffs, multiple dildos, thin plastic tubes, and lengths of rope. They also inspected Dean's van, which looked much like his bedroom. The rear windows were covered with blackout curtains, there was a coil of rope, the carpet inside the van had multiple stains, and there was a wooden box big enough for a person to fit in, which had been outfitted with air holes drilled into the sides. A similar box was found in Dean's backyard with several strands of human hair in it. In an excited utterance, Elmer shouted, quote, "I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest." Unquote. Timothy later told police that Elmer told him, quote, "If you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten 200 dollars for you." Unquote. Once they were officially in custody and back at the station, they were questioned about the events of the evening leading into that morning. Elmer told the police he had killed Dean in self-defense and Timothy and Rhonda's accounts corroborated his story. When Elmer was questioned further about the threats Dean made to him, Elmer fell apart. He went on to confess all of the things he did with Dean as well as David's role in all of this. He explained that over the past three years, he and David helped Dean abduct teen boys, most of whom were friends of theirs, for Dean to rape, torture, and kill. In his confession, he stated, he thought it was just a sex trafficking ring at first, but learned soon after that Dean was killing them himself. He also confessed that he participated in the torture and mutilation and murder of six to eight boys. He also revealed the deal he was given, $200 for every boy he brought back to Dean, even though most of the time he was not given the full amount as promised. Even though the police were skeptical of these claims at first, they were assured that he was telling the truth when he named three victims who had gone missing previously who he said David had helped abduct. One of the victims had been missing for almost three years. The other two had been missing for only two weeks. Elmer then agreed to take the police to the burial sites. He took the police to Dean's boat shed where he claimed most of the bodies had been buried. Once inside the shed, they found the following items. A stolen half-stripped car, a child's bike, a large iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag full of boys' clothes. After removing the items from the shed, they used prison inmates to dig to begin the extraction. As they began digging, they immediately uncovered the body of a young, blonde-haired teenage boy who was wrapped in plastic and covered in lime. As they kept digging, they unearthed multiple other victims, all in various stages of decay. Most were wrapped in plastic, but some were just buried in the dirt, and some still had the ligatures wrapped tightly around their necks. All victims showed signs of sexual torture, such as pubic hairs having been plucked out, chewed genitals, foreign objects still in their rectums, and small glass tubes which had been inserted into their urethrae, then smashed. They all still had gags in their mouths, which had also been taped shut. There was so much to uncover that the investigation was halted at midnight to be continued the next day. Earlier that day, when the police had been interrogating Elmer, David showed up at the police station with his dad. He gave his own statement about his participation in the abduction and murders with Dean but he only admitted to having known that Dean had raped and killed two boys in 1970. The next morning on August ninth, Elmer gave his official written statement, detailing his own accounts as well as David's involvement in all of this. He admitted to having personally killed nine victims and assisted Dean with strangling others. He also told them there were only three abductions David had no part in, which took place that summer. Elmer then led the police to the additional bodies which were buried at Lake Sam Rayburn, where two more bodies than he knew were uncovered. On the same day, when they continued the dig at the shed, they uncovered nine additional bodies which were in advanced stages of decay. One body was discovered to have evidence of sexual mutilation, His genitals were buried with him in a sealed plastic bag. Another victim was found having suffered multiple fractured ribs. Two victims were able to be quickly identified since they were buried with their IDs, Donald and Jerry Waldrop. After all of this evidence had been uncovered, David gave a full confession that night. He admitted to having been present for several of the murders and assisted in several burials but still denied any direct involvement in the rape, torture, and murders. He stated, quote, Once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over but the shouting and the crying, unquote. He revealed that there was another burial site, which he agreed to lead them to. On August 10th, David and Elmer led the police to High Island Beach, where they recovered two additional bodies in shallow graves. Two days later, four more bodies were recovered at the same beach. The body count for this killing spree exceeded over 25 and it was the worst case of serial murder up until this point. The families of the victims were livid with the Houston Police Department because they were quick to label their boys as runaways, closing their missing cases. The families could not understand why a pattern had not been noted considering all the boys were abducted from the same area or at least in close range. Everett Waldrop, the father of Donald and Jerry, stated that he informed the police that someone had seen Dean burying what looked like bodies at his boat shed. In response, the police performed a half-assed search and dismissed the claim. He also said that when he went to the police station again to get an update on the investigation of his missing sons, the police chief said, quote, Why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways, unquote. At this point, David and Elmer were charged in awaiting trial. On August 13th, David was indicted on one count of murder and Elmer for three counts. Their bail was set at $100,000. The district attorney on the case requested that Elmer undergo a psych exam to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial or not, but his attorney, Charles Melder, opposed the request, stating this would violate Elmer's constitutional rights. By the time the grand jury completed their investigation, Elmer had been indicted for six murders and David for four although Dean's death was considered to have been committed in self-defense and without malicious intent. A year later, David and Elmer were tried separately, Elmer first. On July 1st, 1974, Elmer was brought to trial in San Antonio, Texas. He was charged with six murders, which he was said to have committed between March of 1972 to July of 1973. Dozens of witnesses were called to the stand to testify against him. William Reitinger was one of these witnesses, who was the only known victim that Dean released. He had been so scared that he wore a paper bag over his head during trial. William testified that he had been tied to the torture board, raped and tortured before he was released. The police officers who took Elmer's statement even took the stand to read from his confession. In his confession, Elmer described how he lured two boys to Dean's place. Each boy was placed on either side of the board, but only one wrist and one ankle each was tied down. They were forced to fight each other to the death, being promised that the boy who lived would be set free. After several hours of this horrible game they were made to play, the winner was forced to watch his friend be raped and tortured before being shot to death right in front of him. The winner, however, was not released. He too encountered the same fate before being strangled to death. They were killed just two days after having been reported missing. Throughout Elmer's trial, 82 pieces of evidence was brought to court including the torture board and one of the boxes which they used to transport their victims. Medical examiners were called to the stand to explain and describe in vivid detail what kind of torture these boys had to endure. Most of the victims' families had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure when the grim details about their torture and murder were described to the judge and jury. On July 15th, The jury deliberated for only an hour and a half before finding Elmer guilty on all six counts of murders. He was sentenced to 594 years in prison, 99 years for each murder. The following year, on February 27, 1975, David was brought to trial. His defense lawyer argued that David had not committed any murders himself. He stated that Dean and Elmer were the masterminds behind all of this senseless violence, but the district attorney told the jury, quote, this defendant was in on this killing, this murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it, unquote. His trial lasted less than a week, and after closing arguments, the jury deliberated for one and a half hours before finding David guilty of just one murder, the murder of William Ray Lawrence. On March 4, 1975, David was sentenced to life in prison. David showed no emotion when the verdict was read aloud, but his wife burst into tears. Both Elmer and David attempted to appeal their convictions, but both were dismissed. Elmer is still serving his life sentence at the Mark W. Michael unit in Anderson County, Texas. He will be up for parole in 2025 when he is 69 years old. David died from COVID-19 in 2020 while serving his life sentence at the Terrell unit near Rojerun, Texas at the age of 65. Two of Dean's victims still remain unidentified today. And that is where the case ends. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, there's many more to come. Hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications when new episodes drop. If you have any suggestions, send them my way at grimgossippod at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at grimgossippod. All websites used for the research is in the show notes if you guys want to take a deeper dive into this case.